Well, good morning. We're starting something new today, brand new series that we're calling Reasonable Doubt. Um, We're going to be, throughout this series, which is eight parts, we're going to examine a major question or a major doubt to the Christian faith and and see whether or not uh, the faith that we hold up to holds up to that particular question. So if if you you guys are, are all, well, you've lived in this country for enough time to know, right, that the burden of proof lies on those who believe, not on those who don't, right? I mean, you probably work with people or in in the lives of people who they have major doubts, and maybe you have some of those yourself, and you're wondering, is this faith a faith worth believing in? Will it hold the test uh, to the reasonable doubts that people tend to have uh, throughout life? And so what we're not doing in this series, and I want to clarify that, is we're not giving you some kind of like superior argumentation to go out and convert the world to Jesus, okay? We're not saying to you, take what we're teaching you and go out and just have argument upon argument and show the foolishness of everyone who believes something different than you do. And and the reason I say that is don't forget all the things that we taught in our last series. What do we teach? Go and live such good lives among people that they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us so that they would ask you the reason for the hope that lies within you. But we want you to know, and this is what we are doing through this series, that you have a faith that is worth believing. You, you, you have a, a secure faith, a secure hope. And so it, it does address issues like injustice and suffering and evil and on and on and on. And we want you to know that you can have confidence in what you believe. So we're going to start out this series by asking the first question, which is this. How can one religion claim to be the only true one? How can there be just one true religion? And people voice this doubt in a a number of different ways. They say, you Christians, you people are so narrow and so exclusive in your beliefs. Isn't it arrogant to claim that you have some kind of monopoly on truth that nobody else has? Wouldn't the world be a better place if everyone just loved each other and stopped worrying about all of our religious differences and concentrated on what makes us alike? How many of you have ever heard this objection? Quite a few of you, right? I'm not alone in that. So you may not believe this, uh, or you may, but you certainly know people who do. And here's the thing, underneath all of these questions, there is a tightly held belief in our society that says at its very core, if you were to break down what it is, religion is divisive by nature. Religion is divisive and it leads those people who believe in religion to feel superior to everybody else, right? And sometimes, if they believe superior enough to everyone around them, it can even lead to, being, to having hatred over people who disagree with us, which can sometimes even lead to oppression and violence, right? I mean, we've seen this throughout history. And so this may shock you as I kind of start out this morning to hear this from a Christian pastor, but I agree wholeheartedly with that statement. I agree. Religion, by its core, in its very nature, is divisive. And it divides people. Why would I say something like that? Well, if one group feels like they have the truth, right? 
They, they know what the truth is. And that they're saved by carrying out that truth. It will inevitably lead to that group feeling like they're superior to every other group that doesn't believe the one core truth that they do. Right? I mean, this is the argument that people give. And so what happens is it leads to separation because they're them and we're us and we believe the truth and they don't. And that can lead to suspicion and stereotypes. And ultimately, what happens is it it leads you to dehumanizing the people that you disagree with. And we've seen this all over the place, right? So if that's the effect that religion has on its followers, what should we do? What's the strategy then for dealing with the divisiveness of religion? And today, there are two primary tactics that people take when they're trying to address the harm that religion does. And so what I want to actually show you is that both of those things hold no water. They don't hold up. They don't stand up to the test. But that there is, in fact, one way, and it's the only way that I know of that does. Okay? So the first strategy is this, that to address the harmful effects of religion, this is what needs to happen. Religion needs to go away. It just needs, we need to just like minimize it. And if we could just get rid of it altogether, everyone would just be so much happier. I mean, we, we wouldn't have the, the same kinds of things to disagree about and argue over. Can't we, just, can't we just push it out the door and get rid of it altogether? And, and part of this thinking came around because it was once thought that religion was sort of a crutch for people who weren't technologically advanced. Right? It's kind of an evolutionary theory of religion. Well, it worked for people that were primitive and had nothing but stones and rocks to like make fire with. Uh, but over time, what happens is people, they, they evolve, right? And they, they become more enlightened and, 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 and more advanced. And when that occurs, then ultimately what will happen is religion itself will fade into the background. Anybody ever had have anybody that kind of thought that that way. Here's the problem, though. Did you know that all major religions are growing today? Every single one. In fact, the world today is the most religious it's ever been. Now, how do you rectify that with a statement that says that religion should, in fact, and will one day go away? You can't, actually. So I don't know all the statistics, but here's some that I do know. Did you know that in Africa, in over just, just over 100 years, the, the continent of Africa has gone from 9 to 50% Christian? 9 to 50. South Korea, same, same thing, Korean Peninsula, 1% to 45% in 100 years. And you even look at places like South America and China, and they're undergoing the same kind of explosion for the next 100 years. The last estimate I heard is that something like 10,000 Chinese people come to faith in Jesus Christ every single day. It's not going to take too long at that rate for the entire country to become Christian. You realize that. It's a revolution of religion. and Everything is exploding. So, so what you need to say is everywhere where people are going, you know, religion is divisive and it's harmful, we just need to control it and stamp it out. What they've discovered is that the more that you try to control it, the more it grows. And China is actually a great example of this because uh, the, when the communist government took over China, 
what they said is we're going to kick out all the Western missionaries, all the Christians that are here infecting our nation with this Christianity. We're going to get rid of the disease and cast them out. But what happened is Christianity actually grew faster because now you've indigenized its leadership to those people who are Chinese, and now it's growing like wildfire. So why doesn't it seem to go away? Well, we're going to be in the book of 1 John today in chapter 4, actually, because we're going to run through this a little bit. It's on page 845 if you're following along in, uh, in one of the books that we have. Uh, but he starts off the chapter saying this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So it's interesting, because what he's saying is, There are a number of people that are teaching all kinds of worldviews out there in society. And he says that not all of those are equal, right? That there are false prophets as well as true prophets. But listen to what he says. He doesn't say, I want you to test what they say. He says, I want you to test the what? The spirits. So, So what he's saying is, they're not just speaking on their own accord. They're actually speaking on behalf of a spiritual realm that is somehow empowering and giving voice to their message. Now, you may not realize this, but there is a spiritual reality at work. And it's everywhere. And everyone is attuned to it. Everyone knows that it exists. And somehow, something inside of them longs to connect to that other outside reality. You can't see it. You can't know it. You, can't, you don't know it by, by touch or by set, sight. Or, but we know it's there. And everybody agrees on this. The way that we put it here at, at, um, at Cultivate before is that everyone worships something, right? We've said that over and over and over again. That we all give worth to something. And what we give worth to is actually a spiritual worship when we give worth to it. And so John is saying that many of those things that we give our worship away to that we're we're fueling are harmful to us. They're they're idols that will ultimately enslave us rather than freeing us. But you need to realize that worship is a permanent piece of our human nature. And so you can see why trying to stamp it out wouldn't work because it's something that's core to who we are as people. It'd be like trying to take the heart out of every person and then have a society of people that are not living with hearts. I mean, that's a pretty difficult thing to do, right? So that's never going to work. The second strategy that we kind of see in society, and this one's everywhere, is to address the divisiveness of religion this way, by saying religion needs to be marginalized to the private life. Now, this is everywhere. I mean, you you can't go to work without encountering people that believe this, and maybe you do too. People say that it kind of gets put this way, though. Believe whatever you like. Just keep it to yourself, and don't try to convert anyone to your way of thinking. Right? When I I was a missionary to college campuses before uh, I was a pastor, and this uh, it came up over and over and over and over and over again. We'd get into conversations about religion and about Christianity and about Jesus, and they'd go, you know, you Christians, you're always trying to convert everybody. I mean, when can you just, like, let it go and just 
Let your beliefs be your beliefs and mine be mine because in the end, there, there are kind of two assumptions that are going on here. And the first one is this, is that, is that all religions are equal paths to God. So let's just agree on that, okay? Can we just get to that point where we agree they're all equally the same? You can't tell somebody that theirs isn't true and that yours is more true. It just doesn't work. And then the second assumption is this is that religion is good for personal moral character building. Believe whatever you like if it gives you what you need to live in this world. But don't try to press your values on me or don't try to press them onto public life because that, again, will lead to divisiveness and harm, right? The problem is neither one of those statements actually holds up. And First John actually gives us a clue to that. If you go down to verse 5, it says, they, meaning... Critics of Christianity, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. What he's saying is there are critics out there of Christianity, but what he's saying about them is that they speak from a religious viewpoint. Another way to put that would be to say there is nobody that comes to the, the conversation from a vantage point that is irreligious. Even atheists hold a faith-based value system and assumption when they come to an argument. The proof of this, and and you've heard this story before, and we said that we were going to talk about this today, but have you ever heard of the story of the blind men and the elephants? How many of you have ever heard of that story? It's pretty popular, right? So uh, I'll explain it for for those of us that haven't heard it before. But it basically goes like this. There was once an elephant, okay, character number one. And the second group of characters, there's a group of blind men who come upon an elephant. I don't know how they come upon the elephant, but somehow they find themselves in the presence of an elephant, okay? Faith-based assumption number one, right? So they get to the elephant, and they all start feeling around to figure out what in the world this monstrosity is. And so one of the blind men, he gets a hold of the trunk, and he says, well, an elephant is, is long and flexible like a snake. And the other blind man comes to, up to the leg, and he says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. The, the elephant is stout and, and round like a tree. It's planted in the ground. And then a third guy comes and says, no, you don't realize it at all. That He's got a hold of the tail, and, and so it's flexible and... and and, and thin like rope. And there's another one, and he's at the side of the elephant feeling the whole thing, and he's going, you guys are all wrong. This thing is like is big like a wall, you know? And so they all begin this argument over who's right and who's wrong. And so the moral of the story is, see, every man has things that are partially right about the elephant, and every man is partially wrong, too, at the same time, right? They would be so much better off if they just realized that none of them see the whole picture. Wouldn't they just, I mean, they'd all get along so much better if they just dropped this whole identity of truth and just said, look, everyone's right and everyone's wrong. And so it is with religion. That's that's the kind of the tale, the, the tell of the tale, right? Religions all get a piece of the pie correct and everyone gets a piece of it wrong. And so no one should ever say that theirs is superior to anyone else's. 
Here's the problem with the story. The only way, the only way that you could know that the blind men aren't seeing everything is if you're the third character in the story, which is the narrator. Who's the only human being in the story that isn't blind? It's the narrator. See, the narrator sees everything, does he not? He, he knows the elephant for what it is. He's able to see all truth, everything for what it is. And so only the narrator gets to say what's really true. You have to be in that position. So you could only tell the story if you assume that you do see everything that these blind men do not see. Which is the very thing that you say nobody has the ability to do. I love, there's a, a missionary to China, his name is Leslie Newbegin, that was talking about this story, and he comes to this conclusion at the end of it, which I think is brilliant. He says, when people are telling this story, there is an appearance of humility, right? The truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But in fact, it is an arrogant claim with the kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, in other words, anyone who says no religion could possibly see all is actually claiming to speak from an absolute vantage point that is superior to all the religions that are saying, that that he's saying, only see in part. So when you say no viewpoint is superior, you're claiming to have superior knowledge. When you say no one should convert anyone to any other religion, what you're really saying is uh, that you want the listener to convert to to your worldview, where nobody gets to have a say. See, there is no such thing as an unbiased, irreligious opinion. There's no such thing. So if there isn't, here's kind of the second part of that then. You might say, okay, well, nobody can say to anyone else that that you're superior, and and I can't say that my viewpoint is superior, and so I'm going to drop that bit too. Let's just all agree then, since we can't kind of, you know, everyone can't claim to to be part of this thing. We'll just believe it in our own lives, in our own hearts. We'll just kind of take it into ourselves and and never try to press it on anyone else. In other words, believe what you'd like to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, and we can discuss it, but, but... Beyond that, we're just not going to take it any further. And here's the, the problem with keeping it to ourselves. Let me ask you this. Maybe you can give me a, a response to this. What is religion? Yeah, we tend to think of the, the idea of religion as an institution, right? right. So like, like Glenn said, it, it, it's all of the, uh, the activities... Right, and structure right. How that... Yeah, Yeah. so I'll piggyback off of what Kurt said, basically, in that religion is this. This is how I would kind of define it. Religion is a set of answers to life's biggest questions. Right? Why are we here? What is right and wrong? What in the world is wrong with the world? And how do we fix it? What should humans spend their time doing, primarily? 
to bring good into the world. So everyone has an answer to those set, set of questions. You really you can't live in the world without living your life according to a set of answers to those questions, right? If your answer is, I don't know. Even if your answer is I don't know, that's still a religious viewpoint. So. Right. So no one can operate in life without an, a set of answers to those questions. And so even people who don't attach God to those answers, that doesn't make them non-religious. Just a different kind, right? So you're still religious because here's the thing. Nobody can prove your answer to those questions. Nobody can. There, there isn't some lab that you can come up to and say, we can determine absolutely what it means to be right and wrong. Your answers to those questions will be different than everyone else's. And, and, and there is a faith assumption to your answers. That makes you religious. Even if you're an atheist, you're a religious atheist. Congratulations. I just <laughs> recategorized you. So, so here's the thing. When you say, or when somebody says, we need to keep religion private, what they're really saying is, we need to keep your religion quiet, and mine can be in the public square. Right? Because people have a, a, an answer to all kinds of questions. And there are some that are more publicly accessible and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Acceptable than others, right? So to say, no, 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 you can't bring your religion into the public square. We can't debate about these things. We can't talk about what's right and wrong. We can't bring the Bible, for God's sake, into the conversation because that would just, everyone would be, you know, excluded from the conversation. So we can't do that because every viewpoint, according to John, according to the Bible, which I think is the right way to see it, everyone is coming to their opinion from faith. And so here's where we're kind of left, right? We, we need to maybe summarize or, or move forward. Everyone has a view of the world that's based on faith, and everyone thinks that their viewpoint is better than everybody else's. Always. Otherwise, you wouldn't live according to your viewpoint, right? You would live according to somebody else's and claim that theirs is better. And everyone builds their life off of this grand story in which we believe the world works according to that story. All of us have a grand narrative that we build our life around. Another word that we use to, to talk about that is a worldview. Everyone has a worldview, and every worldview is a religious standpoint. So, we, we need to kind of move forward with this then. If everyone is claiming that their religious standpoint is true, then how can we as Christians be so sure that we have the one that's actually true? I mean, we wouldn't be here this morning if we didn't believe that it was more true than other standpoints, right? Other worldviews. So what causes us to say that or to believe it? or even to believe it in a part of our heart, even if we're not willing to say it to other people. Well, I think there are three things that we need to emphasize, and I'm going to wrap up with these things, that are actually what make Christianity different from the rest of the world and not similar, and that it's those differences which actually better address the problem of religious divisiveness in the world. The other two will not work. 
And I believe, my opinion is, this is the only one that will. It's the only one that's going to address the divisiveness of the culture. It's the only one that's going to empower you to be an agent of reconciliation in the world, which is exactly what Christ calls us to be. So we'll go back to 1 John 4 to look at the answer to this. The first thing is, what makes Christianity different from every religious standpoint is that the origin of Jesus' salvation is different from the origin of every religion. All religions have an origin. They all have, even worldviews have an origin point, a genesis from which they start. Someone had to start it. Someone had to begin to tell other people about it so that the message would spread. This is how John says Christianity began. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What's the weird word in that? I've kind of highlighted it for you. Come. Why not born? Everybody else is born. He says come. That's different, right? I mean, if he meant born, he actually probably would have said born. Yeah, it sort of means he must have been somewhere else before he was born, right? Every other religion teaches that its founder, and this is the implied part, is human only. Christianity is the only one that says, in Jesus Christ, God himself has come into the world. It's the only one. The origin of our faith is entirely different. Now, most people would say, if you believe that, that is going to make you the most arrogant person on the face of the planet. And if you're not a believer in Jesus and you're suspicious of this whole thing um, and you've run up against Christians who have been arrogant because they've said, you know, you guys, you follow a religious viewpoint or a man, we follow God, so there. Right? (laughs) Like it's the ultimate trump card, right? If If you've encountered somebody who's followed Jesus and has been arrogant over that point, it's because they don't understand what comes next. Right? Because the origin isn't just different for Christianity, but the, the entire purpose for Jesus saving us is utterly different than every other religion in the world. See, all religions exist to get those who follow that religion saved from something. Every one of them. Here, here's what it says about Christianity. This is how you can write, and we'll go through the same verse. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God. You may not realize this, but every other religion, the purpose of following that religion is so that you could escape the flesh. It's so that you could get out of all of the harmful things in the world. So that you could be kind of broken away from it. And and some religions, mostly Eastern religions, teach you that the flesh is really just not reality at all. And if you cultivate the spirit, then you will see how much of an illusion the flesh is and you will reach a point of zen or separation from the world. Western religions primarily teach that the opposite, that the flesh is real, but that through certain moral codes, you can become a good enough person so that God will look on you and your works and get you the heck out of this world because it's bad and it's going to infect you if you're here long enough. 
See, with all of them, the physical world is the problem. So what it means to be saved is to be removed from this world and go to heaven where you won't be stained by its wickedness anymore. And let me tell you, there are many Christians out there that believe something very similar to this. And they're entirely unbiblical in their belief. Because Christianity says that at the birth of Jesus, God received a body of all things. And when Jesus was resurrected, remember we celebrated that last week, that he rose from the dead? He actually went to his followers and he said, look, touch me. Feel, I'm not a ghost. I'm, my body isn't still in there. It's here. I've redeemed it. I'm new, but I'm still in a body. See, what it's saying is God's ultimate plan is to actually redeem the physical world and all of the death and all of the disease all the poverty and injustice that we see, everything that makes this world broken, God has an intention not to abandon any of it, but to redeem it, to restore it back to the way that He created it to be. And here's the thing. Deep down inside of ourselves, we know two things. One, that this world was created to be good. And two, that it does not look like our picture of what it should look like, right? I mean, you sit down with anyone and you say, what does is, what is the perfect world look like? What is utopia? And by and large, they will give you the same answers to that question over and over and over and over again. And then you ask the follow-up question, does the world that we live in look like that? And the answer every time will be no. All of us realize those two things And yet Christianity is the only one that says, you're right. The world was created to be good. The world is not what it should be. And thirdly, God has a plan to restore it back to the way that it should have been. It's the only one. Every other worldview is trying to get people out. God is the only one coming in. And what we saw in the last series is God sends us as his people back into the world so that we would bring redemption and restoration to it. And so you see, you you can't be a follower of Jesus and be arrogant toward those who disbelieve what you believe because you're there to help them to be redeemed. That's the very purpose that you're there, is to help them in that. And so you can come alongside of people that are worried about the environment, and you can be worried about the environment and work towards its restoration too, but you do it from an entirely different standpoint. You do it to demonstrate that God is good and that he's coming back and one day he's going to make everything new. But in the meantime, he has sent me here to be an agent of restoration and reconciliation on his behalf. That's entirely different from everything else. Every religion claims that it can get its followers saved. Only Christianity claims that it can actually save the world and everything in it. And so it should lead us, those of us that believe it should lead us to care about those people who aren't yet its followers or who may never be its followers and to work towards the salvation of the world. Thirdly, and we're going to end with this, is that not just the origin and the reason or the purpose for Jesus' salvation, but the very means for why we're saved is different or how we're saved. In every other religious viewpoint, what we're told is, that in order to be saved, you need to follow the truth. Here is the set of rules. Here is the set of truths. 
build your lives upon these things, and you will be a good enough person to earn for yourself salvation. Which means that you need to, you need to love God. And you need to love other people and you need to be peaceful and you need and you need and you need and you need and do and do and do and do and do enough so that God sees everything that you're doing and then He'll bless you and save you. Do you see that? If you do this, then God will do this and you will be this. That's the way that it goes. And there are many people out there, many people out there, who claim to be Christians and yet believe something very similar to this. Here's what you need to know. Please, if you've missed everything else that I've said this morning, please don't miss this. That is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. Christianity is altogether different because here's what the gospel says, and this is radical to the core. This is love. This is what John says in verse 10. Not, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, God comes and He sacrificially pours Himself out and He suffers for people who don't love Him and don't follow Him and aren't good and aren't virtuous and don't love one another. Jesus isn't just some good teacher telling us how we should live so that we would be saved. He's a Savior who lives the life that we should have lived, dies the death that we deserve to die in our place, pays the penalty for the sin that we accumulated. He he gives us through grace this salvation to those who don't live up to the teachings of its founder. You realize that, right? Every other one you have to live up to the, to the teachings of the person who founded the religion. Christianity is the only one that says, don't worry about it, you never will. But he lived up to it, enough to give you salvation who don't. It's radical, isn't it? That's what's unique about Christianity. But, You might say, shouldn't we just be able to love one another without this talk about Jesus? I mean, that's kind of the mantra of the world, right? Let's just just get to the point where everybody gets along and loves one another. Let's not worry about all these things that divide us, particularly this Jesus thing, because it just seems so exclusive, right? Here's what John says in the verses that come just before and after it. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God has shown his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. In other words, there is no such thing as real love apart from God because he's the source. And so we need to ask, how does God offer his love to us? It's through his son. So there's no such thing as truly loving anyone apart from accepting the love that comes from God. And here's why. You may say, that sounds crazy. Because unless you receive this perfect love that comes from God, then then loving for you will always be a religious obligation in order to, to earn approval either 
before God or before somebody else. It will become an act in trying to gain approval rather than an exercise in the fact that you already have approval. Which, if you do it long enough and hard enough, in order to gain approval for yourself, what you're going to say to yourself and probably other people is, I've come to the place where I've now earned enough for myself, which will make you feel superior to everyone who loves less well as you. People that don't love as good as as you do, those people aren't as high up the ladder as you are because you've loved people really, really well, and you've proved it to yourself and to God, right? It's a religious obligation. It's overcoming hurdles. and, And here's the thing. You'll always have to be better than somebody else in order to prove yourself that you're living out the truth in the way that you need to in order to get the salvation that you long for. And that's exactly what creates the self-righteousness and divisiveness that, that wreaks havoc in the world. And so you can be an atheist and still fall into this trap, right? Because you, you can look down on everyone that doesn't hold your viewpoint, especially those who attribute their faith to God, and say to them, you're what's wrong with the world. If, if only you believed like I did, then the world would be a much, much better place. Every group looks down on those who don't measure up to their list of rules and regulations. Christianity is the only belief system that I know of that expects that other people will be better than you at many things. It is the only good news that says, you know what's wrong with the world? I am. I am. It's my sin that put Jesus on the cross. It's my sin that that needed to be redeemed and restored. I'm the one to blame for the ills of the world. I'm culpable. And because of that, I need to humble myself before God and before other people. It's the only viewpoint that leads you to a place of humility. Because you know how much grace you need from others and from God. So what could possibly motivate us to live this way? I want you to think for just a second of the the origin of our faith again. The, The reason that we would live humbly and live this way is because Jesus, though God in the flesh, what did he do? He blessed those who cursed him. He had the wealth of heaven, and yet he became poor so that those of us who were poor might become rich in him. He forgave those who killed him and sacrificed for those who were opposed to him. And then he says to those who have been captivated by this love, Dear friends, since God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, everyone has exclusive beliefs. The question is, which beliefs will lead you to radical love? And I would submit to you that only this does. And so here's my challenge to you. If you believe the gospel, believe it more deeply and see what it does to your heart and to others. And if you don't believe the gospel yet, consider believing it. Because it will change your life and it will change the lives of the people that are around you. That's the gospel. And that's what sets it apart from everything else. It's good news, right? Let's pray.
Father, thank you that we get to come to you humbly. Thank you that though we didn't deserve it, Jesus took our place on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin, and because of that, we have life in you. But it's never something that we should claim as being superior over other people because we know that apart from your grace, we're just like everyone else. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing that you look down in our hearts and said, this person is worthy of my love. We're we're not those good people. We're the people that need grace the most. We're the ones... We're the ones that haven't lived up. And yet you're the one who came into our lives to give us the life that we didn't deserve. I pray, God, that that would lead us to humility, that it would lead us to engage people humbly, but with love and in truth, knowing that you did ransom us, that you did give us life, and that that life is available. Even to those who curse you, even to those who put you to death, you cried out on behalf of them for their forgiveness. I pray that we'd be your people as we go out into the world this week. In Jesus' name, amen.